Thank you, Ruth. Um, uh, do keep your Bibles open. Um, we're going to have a quick uh, look, scan through Ephesians to begin with, because today we're reaching our penultimate passage on our journey uh, through the book of Ephesians, and, and next week we're, we're looking forward to the armor of God and how we can apply that to our uh, our lives today, but today um, uh, uh, we've reached a penultimate sort of passage. And over the last uh, couple of months, really since the beginning of September, uh, we've been going through this letter, Peace, 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 and we've been seeing that it's a letter of two halves, but of one message, two halves of one message. Uh, because chapters one to three are, are full of rich theological truths about God and his love for us. So, so if you want to turn back, just want to pick up a few of those verses. So in chapter one, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. I love to sign off my emails, every blessing, not in a cheesy Christian kind of way, but because it's true. And I pray for the recipient of that letter that they would receive every blessing and step into the fullness of salvation. Every time I sign every blessing, you know I'm praying for your salvation, that you would last the course. Every spiritual blessing, we are chosen and adopted as his children. What a wonderful thing that we are adopted into his family. And that through his death, we have been forgiven. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit until a day of redemption, the day that Christ's return, which we're looking forward to this Advent season. That's only chapter one. Let's look at chapter two. We were once dead, but because of God's great love for us, he has made us alive. He has moved us from wrath to rescue. It is by grace that we have been saved, so we don't need to worry about pulling ourselves up by our own shoelaces, Um, and that we have been made one, that grand theme of unity that works throughout this letter. And then in chapter three, you know, glorious verses such as uh, that, that Paul prays that we would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for you, and, and that Christ is able to do immeasurably more, no matter how desperate you think your situation is, he's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask for and imagine. And I'm sure you want to uh, stand with me and want to say a big amen to all of those promises um, that we find in Scripture. All of those promises. There's a song, isn't there? Yes and amen. We, we stand on all these promises. And then we get into the second half of Ephesians. And we must never forget the first half, because the first half feeds into and is our motivation for the second half. And, and in the second half, uh, chapters four to six, it, where it gets incredibly practical. It's where we're encouraged to live as children of light, but Paul doesn't leave it with general sort of live as children of light. He gets down to the nitty gritty of everyday living. And this is because this letter is a letter of two halves, but of one message because the theology of one to three chapters one to three the trinity the cross grace this should have an effect on every area of our lives it is the glorious uh, in light of the glorious truths of chapters one to three what does it mean this is the sermon series we've been looking at what does it mean to be church what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus what does it mean for our everyday life and so in our passage today the apostle Paul addresses two topics and we're going to look at them in turn the first is this Jesus and your family And the second is this, Jesus 
and your work. Jesus and your family, Jesus and your work. Let's dive straight into, um, got to get back to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Jesus and your family. Now, if you were here with us last week, you will know that, 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 that last week's passage and indeed this week's passage is a sort of practical, unfolding, outworking of the great ethic that we find in verse 21 of chapter 5. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And so Paul works out what it looks like in marriage. He works out now what it looks like in that parent-child family situation. Then he works out what it looks like in the home. And so verses one to four is what this call to mutual submissiveness means for a relationship between parent and child. Uh, and, And Paul issues a twofold instruction to us here. Children are, verse one, to obey their parents, and verse two, to honor their father and mother. Uh, it, it brings quite a smile to my face when I hear obey their parents. I know what some of you are probably now thinking. Can I please pause for a moment, Davis, whilst I go collect my kids from next door because they really need to hear this next part of the message. Uh, well, before you do so, let me sort of remind you uh, that uh, we'll soon be moving on to verse four, which says that parents should not be exasperating their children. Um, so um, we may want to pause for that. So, so let's stick with children for a moment and let's not forget that as adults ourselves some of us will be fortunate to have parents that are still with us and so when we read this passage we too can put ourselves in the place of the child and and ask what does this mean for me as a child to my my living parents now, now that, that sense of obeying is sort of, you know, I don't have time to unpack it. There's cultural implications. And when we reach full adulthood, then we should be reaching a stage of independence. You know, it's not honoring our father and mother if we're too much dependent upon them. We should be living in independence. Um, but what does this mean for us today? Well, I, I know, you know, uh, thinking of our church family here, many of us are facing uh, really difficult decisions with, with aging parents and we're, we're desperately trying to work out what it means to honor our father and our mother at this stage in our relationship what's it mean to honor our father and mother you know when in writing honor your father and mother paul is actually quoting the fifth of the ten commandments now the usual way in which we think of the ten commandments is this, we bunch together one and four, which is all about our relationship to God, and then what we do is we lump uh, sort of the other six, the other six together to do with our relationship with our neighbor. But this is not the Jewish way of thinking. But Jewish people uh, regularly teach that these laws appeared on two tablets, each tablet containing five commandments, and the significance of this relationship is that it brings commandment number five the honoring of our parents into our duty to God. It's not our duty to our neighbor, it's our duty to God. And I find this an interesting concept, for it is true, particularly in childhood, that parents do represent God to us. How do they represent God to us? In both their authority over us and their unconditional, or should be, unconditional love for us. So at their best, And I know parents do fail from time to time, sometimes significantly, but at their best, they are there to love us unconditionally, 
and also to teachers and trainers in the way that we should go. And therefore, they represent God to us. And therefore, we are to honor them, no matter how old we are, because of their God-given place in our lives. And so we give them love, and, they, and we give them our respect, even though many of them will have failings. Love and respect, irrespective of what age they are, despite the failings they have, we give them love and respect. We honor them as a way of recognizing that for good or for ill, God has given them a place in our lives. And we are called to honor our mother and father. So that's verses one to three. Uh, Paul writes to children. Then he gets on to parents. And this verse begins with the words, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Fathers not exasperate your children. I happened to walk into the kitchen yesterday and uh, I said, oh, Catherine, I'm, uh, uh, one of the verses I'm speaking on tomorrow is fathers, uh, do not exasperate your children. It's as if Paul knows me all too well. Now, I, I thought at this point, uh, Catherine might come back with maybe a word of encouragement or a, or a word of affirmation. Instead, she simply replied, well, of course, David, mothers are perfect. So... Um, now, I've been married enough years to, to know that that was not the time or place to inform Catherine that the Greek word that we translate as fathers here could equally mean fathers and mothers. And I'm a safe distance from her at this time. So uh, this verse has two parts to it. The first, it says we we're told not to exasperate our, our child or our children. What's the word exasperate mean? Well, other translations have it, do not provoke your children to anger or do not goad your children to resentment. And there are two ways in which we can uh, cause our children to grow up to be angry. And the first way is to over-discipline them, to be too harsh. And this would have definitely been the case when Paul wrote this letter. Children in this context were often treated with callous cruelty. By instructing in parents not to provoke their children to anger, Paul is starting to unpack Jesus' radical, countercultural lifestyle. Jesus, who, who when the disciples were saying, get away from Jesus, you annoying little kids, he said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus had that sort of radical, remember the place that children had in society, like the place that wives had in society, and the gospel elevates them. They elevate them to equals. And so we can over-discipline our children. This can lead to them growing up angry. But more recently in the West, uh, the tables seem to have turned. I know that I speak to people of, of different cultures from, from the East, that the, the sort of um, uh, elders are still honored. But today in the West, sort of, uh, our elders, our elderly parents and neighbors seem to be taking less of our attention. And instead, sort of children are elevated to the position of honor. And as a result of this sort of elevation of children to a position of honor, we too can under-discipline our children. We can under-discipline them. And this too can lead to them growing up angry. For if we are uh, always excusing their poor behavior, if we're uh, afraid of their disapproval, if we indulge their desires, whatever they want, um, if we're not consistent with them, then we are raising our children with, with a sense of entitlement. And this will also mean that they'll grow up angry. Angry. Why do they grow up angry? 
Well, they will soon discover when they go out into the world that the world is not nearly as compliant to their every wish as we have been as parents. And this will lead to this sense of anger and resentment. They need our consistent, fair, gentle, affirming discipline. Parents do not provoke your children to anger. And then we move into the second uh, half of uh, the, the instruction. But before we do, uh, in our prayer meeting before uh, the service, um, uh, we, 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 there was a sense of um, actually uh, God wanted to, to, to bring to mind that there are parents here that are, are looking forward to their children coming home and, and that sense of the prodigal son, uh, 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 the prodigal son story. And some parents really wanted their prodigals to come home. And as I've been thinking and praying about this, I'm reminded of, uh, of a book, a book written by the wife of Billy Graham, and it's called Prodigals, Prodigals and Those That Love Them. And in this book, um, uh, Ruth uh, sort of traces back uh, to, uh, through the childhood of their son, Franklin. And uh, Franklin is now uh, a minister uh, in his own right. But, but when he was young, when he was a teenager, Franklin was horrendously rebellious. He broke his parents' heart with his waywardness, his drink, his drugs that he was taking. And he was just you know, completely living a sort of a lifestyle that sort of Billy and Ruth would want for their son. And, and then it, what Ruth does is she traces the, the Franklin's radical turnaround to one conversation, the start to his radical turnaround to one conversation. And that was on his 21st birthday. On his 21st birthday, uh, uh, Billy took his son Franklin out for the walk and he said to his son Franklin, he says, I want you to know that we will never disown you. No matter what you do, we will always love you unconditionally. We'll always love you no matter what. And it was that conversation that sort of was the start to Franklin changing his heart. And, and we just pray that, that would, would, God would be speaking to people here through that. We're not to provoke our children to anger. We are to be gentle with them. And then we, we even with the prodigals, the prodigals and those that love them. And then we move into the second half of this verse, which complements the first. It says, do not exasperate your children Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And the Greek word here means to, to nourish, to feed your children. It's the same word that's used if you look back in verse 29 where it speaks of the nourishment that we give to our own bodies. I love how uh, the, the French reformer John Calvin translates this verse. He, he writes it like this. Let them be fondly cherished. Deal with them gently. Let them be fondly cherished. Deal with them gently. Uh, Another uh, translation says, you know, love them tenderly. We need to remember that despite the fact that they can be a pain at time and they can push our buttons, that children are fragile creatures and they need our tenderness and the security of love. And so, can we spur ourselves on to be ever more gentle and, children, uh, gentle and tender with our children? And I pray that for us as parents as well. And we, and, and we are to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, this is, this is something, the training and instruction of the Lord is not something that parents can delegate to Sunday school teachers. Kids' church next door can help, but faith is caught 
on a Monday to Saturday more than it's taught on a Sunday. You know, they will see the priorities in our lives. And many of us will know the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. If I start the sentence, you could probably all finish. Don't worry, I won't get you to. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. And then the very next verse What's it mean to love the Lord our God with all our soul, our, our, our mind, our strength, and our heart? What does this look like in, in, in practice? The next verse says this. These commandments I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, when you do your bedtime stories, in the morning with them, impress them on your children. And you know what the common fashion today is? You know, people say, I just want my children to find their own way in life. You know, but scripture has a very different view. We are to impress upon our children the sincerity of our faith and what it means to us. And this does not mean being directive or domineering because this will have the opposite effect. This is, this is not us trying to impose our mind upon uh, or our will upon our children. It is to simply teach the Christian values of truth and goodness to defend these values because the world is attacking them, to defend these values and to simply recommend their acceptance. That's how we impress upon our children, to defend it, to teach them, to defend them and to recommend them for acceptance. Whilst at the same time we must abstain from pressure or coercion. Jesus and family, next Jesus and work. Jesus and work. Uh, now, we move, before we move on to a consideration of what these verses have to say about Jesus and work, it's worth noting that here Paul is writing to slaves and masters. And therefore, before we move on to the practical invitations for us today of these verses, we must acknowledge the evil of slavery in every form, and it's still happening today. And we need to ask the question, why does the gospel not offer a more radical condemnation of slavery? Now, I want to be clear. The New Testament does not condone slavery of any form. And indeed, Christians such as William Wilberforce um, were central in the abolition of slavery. But why, does, why do we not get a stronger message of condemnation of slavery? Now, some Christians seeking to defend uh, themselves against such criticism rightly point out that there has been various degrees of degradation of slavery uh, throughout different times and places. And it is true that the slavery that we commonly think of, 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 of the slave trade, the 18th and 19th century, um, it was terribly degrading. It wasn't like slavery of, of, of past. It was based upon race. You know, it was a differentiation of social classes. It was horribly degrading. It was more degrading than Roman slavery. And Greek slavery was less degrading than Roman slavery. And in Hebrew slavery was even less degrading than that. But nevertheless, despite the fact that often people would, uh, would willingly sell themselves into slavery as a way of moving up the social ladder in order to get better education for their kids, nevertheless, 
The evil of slavery does not lie in the servitude it involves because after all, Jesus came to serve. Paul calls himself a slave of the Lord Jesus in this respect. Nor does slavery, nor does the evil of slavery lie in the element of compulsion. But instead, it lies in the ownership of one human being by another to be exploited and to be traded. And so why did the New Testament writers not condemn slavery more explicitly? Well, I can offer only a few suggestions here. The first answer is a pragmatic one. Let's recognize that when the New Testament was written, Christians were an insignificant group, politically powerless, often being, well, burnt at the stake themselves. Okay, these were politically powerless. In contrast, ancient society was economically dependent upon slavery. Uh, to the same degree, probably to a greater degree, the modern society is dependent upon technology. Now, can you imagine if a group sort of sprang up and said, we need to chuck away all the computers, get rid of emails, some of you might say, brilliant. But others might think, oh, come on. You know, you're just being a little crazy. So it was a pragmatic response. They had no political power. The second reason why we do not see a stronger condemnation of slavery is because in Roman times, actually, for slaves to become free people was, was constant and easy. Something like half a million slaves were, were, were released from freedom in, in about the 50-year period that this was written. You know, people were constantly, I think at the age of 30, they, they tended to be released uh, out of slavery. And more than just being released to fend for themselves, they would be trained, given an apprenticeship, trained up in a profession, and released in great numbers to live lives. And you can find um, numerous accounts of former slaves becoming more wealthy and prosperous than their former owners. The Roman slave would look forward to their day of freedom. And thirdly, humane legislation around slavery was already being introduced at the time of this letter. Record shows that sweeping um, uh, humanitarian changes were already happening. So, for instance, in AD 20, uh, the Senate decreed that a slave had the same access to, to the courts and should be tried in exactly the same way as the free man. Yeah, justice was open and equal to all. And in AD 50, Claudius decreed that if a sick slave ran away, then he should be given their freedom. Nevertheless, we cannot condone the cowardice of two further centuries of this social evil. However, we can rejoice that the gospel, even in the first century when this was written, did begin, did begin to undermine the institution of slavery. Because first, the gospel preached equality, radical equality. Slave and free were equal before God. In verse 9, we read that they were both equal before God because they had the same Lord and judge, and God would show no partiality between master and slave. Secondly, their relationship between slave and master was to be one of justice, talks about the, 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 the responsibilities of slaves to the masters. And then in verse 9 it says, treat your slaves in the same way. There's supposed to be this, this reciprocal nature of slave-master relationship. If slaves had duties to their masters, masters had duties to their slaves. 
And third, most significantly, is the concept of brotherhood. And slave and free were all brothers and sisters of the same heavenly father. This concept of brotherhood is one of the key themes of Ephesians, this theme of unity. But we also see it in other places, such as Paul's letters to Philonim, in which he urges Philonim uh, uh, to welcome this now Christian uh, Onesimus, who is, and he quotes this, no longer a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. Slaves and masters were brothers. And therefore, within Christianity, we see the seeds of the abolition to slavery. Now, time is drawing to a close, and uh, I wish I had more time to unpack what this passage means uh, uh, for us. For instance, uh, one thing I'd love to say is how all work is divine work. All work is divine calling. If, if you pick up a book, if I showed you a book from a bookshelf saying, you know, uh, uh, I was called by God, you'd probably think, oh, that's a book about, you know, going into serving the church or working for a charity. Actually, all work is divine work as long as it is not evil. But I just want to end on this uh, one reflection about Jesus and your work. Look beyond your boss to your true boss. Look beyond your boss to your true boss. Verse seven, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Look beyond your boss to your true boss. These words were written to slaves, yes, but they're applicable to us today. Whether we are employed, at home, looking after the practicalities, whether we're retired, whether we're involved in volunteer work or or just keeping things going at home. These words are applicable to us. We are to serve wholeheartedly as if we are serving the Lord, not people. We can cook a meal as if it was Jesus who's gonna eat it. We can clean a house as if Jesus is the honored guest. We can volunteer as if it was Jesus who you are serving. In the same way, teachers should educate, nurses should care, shop assistants should serve their customers, accountants should audit books. Whatever we do, provided it is not evil, everything we do is a divine calling and we should serve wholeheartedly as if we're serving Jesus. And I'm, and I'm also aware that some of us here today are working or have worked in destructive environment, workplaces that do not deserve your best, managers that do not deserve your best efforts. And there are some environments that it is important to remove ourselves from. However, whatever your workplace might look like, whether it is good, bad, or indifferent, we should all, all of us, look beyond our boss to the true boss, Jesus Christ, who always deserves our best. And such a view of work has the power to liberate us and to give us dignity, to give us dignity as we are no longer looking to our earthly boss or for his or her affirmation, but to our true boss, Jesus Christ, who bestows upon us dignity. Verse seven, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know the Lord will reward everyone for whatever he or she does. Shall we stand? We're gonna pray, and then we're gonna worship together with our final song. Lord, we're just aware that that the minute that we become followers of Jesus, it does not simply give us peace within but it affects every area of our lives from the inside out.
from the inside out, Lord. Affect every area of our lives with your gospel. And so we open ourselves to you now. We remain open to you now. And we ask for your Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit to gently love us, to gently restore us, to gently prompt us. There are some here today that may be being challenged by these words to love, to gentleness, to service. Lord, we just pray that the Holy Spirit, you, Holy Spirit, be at work in our lives. And some of us here need to forgive. Forgive parents that have not been what they ought. To give children, to forgive children for the many times that they have broken and continue to break hearts, Lord. Lord, freely as we've received, freely we give. Freely we receive your forgiveness, freely we give. Gently you tend and care us. Help us to gently tend and care for our children, our godchildren, our our grandchildren, the children you place in our lives. Come Holy Spirit, we pray. Lord, help us to lift our eyes above our earthly bosses, the mundane day-to-day work we may be doing, and to see it as a divine calling. Come Holy Spirit, inspire us, give us dignity and a purpose. Liberate us to serve you, Holy Spirit. We pray, help us to worship and be at work in our lives.